Welcome to Diversity Matters, the podcast where every voice is welcome and every story is celebrated. Join Mike and his guests as they deep dive into the heart of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They explore whether real change is happening. Together, they open up honest dialogue that touch upon various DEI subjects, from inspiring conversations to challenging ones, with the hope of sparking thought-provoking discussions. Please welcome your host, Mike Seeley. Hello, and welcome to the Diversity Matters podcast show, where we explore different topics that address the importance and benefits of diversity and inclusion in our society and the workplace. My guest this week is Yannick DaCosta, a Jamaican-born graphic designer and entrepreneur with a passion for advocating for diversity and inclusivity in the design industry. She holds a BA in Fine Arts from Florida Atlantic University and a Master of Fine Arts in Media Design from Full Sail University. She is the founder and owner of YKMD, a unique graphic design company that utilizes modern technology and tools capable of delivering custom-branded graphic designs in as fast as 12 hours after submission. Unique has made significant strides in her career, serving on the executive board of the Graphic Artists Guild as national treasurer before being elected as the first black president of the organization. She is also a vice president of the International Council of Design, where she advocates for the design community worldwide. Her dedication to promoting diversity and inclusion in the design industry has earned her a reputation as a trailblazer and champion for the underrepresented voices. Yannick, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Oh, it's a real pleasure to have you. Um, I just want to start first of all, um, because I mentioned in the intro that you are Jamaican. Just wondering if you can share your experiences of growing up in Jamaica. Growing up in Jamaica for me was like the ideal way that any person should grow up. I was surrounded by a loving family and an amazing and supportive community. I was able to have access to some of the best education that anybody could possibly have. I had experiences that molded and shaped a world view of things versus like this pocket of the world where no one else exists and no one else matters. And I was actually raised by my grandmother and my grandfather for the most part. Uh, and I traveled back and forth from one side of the island to another side of the island on the weekends because my mother lived on the North Coast and I lived with my grandparents on the South Coast. Every weekend I'd jump on this like tiny plane, go visit my mom. <laughs> That's, I guess, my, my, my synopsis of what it's like to grow up in Jamaica from my perspective. I right. fully acknowledge that like, it comes from a place of privilege, and, and I appreciate and acknowledge the fact that my family was able to provide a lifestyle that was more than comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. And it, it might not be the same for everyone, but I'm, I'm grateful for what I was able to experience. And you studied in the USA, and particularly studied graphic design. I did. With, uh, was it a master's in fine arts and a BA as well? What was it that led you to a career in graphic design? Why did you study fine arts? First of all, I went to St. Andrew High School for Girls, which is, if you know anything about being educated in Jamaica, it's like a major deal. And when I was choosing the different courses that I would focus on, so you choose very specific courses 
for the last two years of your studies within high school, that mm-hmm. would basically shape what you wanted to focus on when you went to university. I was, I didn't pick art off the back. And my art teacher was like, so you're not, you're not doing art. And I was like, ah, for me, I thought it would be very disappointing to my family. And I went home to my grandmother and I was like, what do you think if I chose art? And she was like, everybody needs a fun subject. And I was like, great. And I did it, did relatively well between like anything math related. So numbers and then anything like visual. Those are my two things. Words, not so much, but that's another story altogether. (laughs) And after completing my like high school education in Jamaica, I migrated to the United States, but like I migrated kicking and screaming. I was like, this is ghetto. I have to go to America where I have to make my own bed and cook my own food. I was like, I don't like this. This is not the kind of life that I deserve. Uh." Anyway, so in the midst of doing all that and being like an obnoxious spoiled brat about it, I was like, well, I guess they say I have to come here to go to college. So if I'm going to go to college, I'm going to major in something that I like. The general idea was that I was supposed to be some kind of science major, health major, um, law, like poli sci, something. Because, I mean, you know, I'm an immigrant, right? So lawyer, doctor, engineer, mm-hmm. nurse, accountant, something. One, one, of, the, one, one of the standard careers that yeah. we're expected to have as immigrants moving to America. And I was just like, yeah, no, nah, this is not going to work. So my two favorite subjects, math and art. Math was just, it came easy for me, but then art was just really fun for me, a really great way of like, expressing myself, but it also came easy to me. And I was like, well, I'm going to go with the one that I have to exert the least amount of effort in. Like, I fully believe that people should not go to college and choose a career based on how much money they're going to make. I really feel like people should go to college and choose a major to enhance a skill that they already inherently possess. Mm-hmm. And with that, they will ultimately find success and find the financial freedom that they were looking for had they chose a career path that was like the standard of what it means to have money. Anyway, so I decided I'm going with art. And that drove my mother crazy. I mean, I'm pretty sure all the way up until I was 28, it drove her crazy. And why, why is that? One of the things that she used to say was like, I sent you to private school your whole life for you to go to college to learn how to draw. Have you lost your mind? <laughs> And I set myself up in a way where I applied for every scholarship. And when I say every scholarship, I don't mean like one or two. I mean, like I filled out like at least 35 at a minimum. And I got quite a few of them. So I had scholarships for housing, scholarships for books, scholarship for like just like general stipends, you know. And then I didn't even realize because I wasn't familiar with the American system, that after taking the ACT and the SAT that I had qualified for the Florida Bright Future Scholarship that had already covered 100% of my tuition. So Hmm. these additional scholarships were just like padding. So it was like really, it was really nice. But it also meant that I was in control of what I did at school because I was the one controlling the purse strings. My -hmm. grandfather always said, he who controls the, like the funding controls the situation or that's like, you know, me paraphrasing, but I was able to control. No one could tell me what to do because no one's (laughs) paying for it, but me. So that's the story of how I managed to major in art, but how I got into graphic design was I was still trying to bridge the gap between something that satisfied me and something that satisfied my family. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, well, I'm going to do art, but in order to be able to work my way into the 
stereotypical life of corporate America. I'm going to do graphic design. Well, actually, I was like commercial art. I'm going to do commercial art so that I can have a way to like provide like a, you know, sustainable standard of living for myself and not be a starving artist. I mean, apparently it worked out. So here we are. Mm -hmm. So just tell me, while you were going through university, you mentioned earlier on that you went kicking and screaming. Tell me, what was the experience like, particularly as an immigrant from, from Jamaica? Okay, so there are a couple of things, right? So number one, I definitely had a longing to feel like I belonged. Right now, people will be like, well, you don't have a Jamaican accent. I was like, mm, there's some instances where it's intentional. Like I didn't want to stand out. I did not right. want to be seen as different. I wanted to be a part of. So I made all these significant efforts to like adjust my, the inflections in my voice. And there's still certain words where they'd be like, oh no, you're, you're a Jamaican. And then other words where they're like, we're not sure. In any case, so I gravitated to a lot of Caribbean groups, like so Caribbean groups at school. So when I was going to Miami-Dade Community College, because that's where I started, because I could not figure out a major, which is again, ironic, but it was a process. And when I was there, I gravitated towards this group called Tropical Beat. And it was just a bunch of Caribbean people from all over the place. Just like, it felt like I was making friends like in Jamaica, but like in America, it was weird. Mm -hmm. And so hung out with them and that was really cool. Got the AA and then went to like Florida Atlantic University. And then also started there when it came to like gravitating towards like the Caribbean culture. But then I was also introduced to like sororities and fraternities and then student government life and like what it's like to live in a scholarship house and like all these different things. And I really just kind of like tried out a bunch of things and mm -hmm. figured out where I fit best, like where I felt the most comfortable. And then I just positioned myself within that group of people and having those different groups to kind of like support and create a community that accepted me for like whoever I decided to be in that moment. Cause mm. I consider myself a very versatile person was really amazing. I mean, even like right now, there are a bunch of like situations where in Florida, a lot of the DEI oriented groups are being defunded. So they would have mm. like school funded clubs, right? Like if you form this club at school, you would get X amount of dollars to put on programming to help with membership, whatever. And now these same clubs that made me feel so comfortable and made my time working into like the American system so much easier no longer really exist or are facing challenges financially in order to sustain this community to continue to create the kind of welcoming environment that people like me will need in order to thrive in the American society. Mind you, going to Florida Atlantic University is actually a predominantly white institution, but mm -hmm. I didn't know this, which is hilarious, but I, I knew all the Black people, which is also just as funny. It's like, I was like, this is my own little world, you know? So, so it was comfortably uncomfortable. <laughs> but let me ask a question because you, you you mentioned something very interesting that in order to fit in, you kind of adjusted your style accordingly to the environment, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think if you hadn't have done that, would you have got as far as you had done in your career today? Do you think it would have no. held you back a little bit? I think it's kind of like I, 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 I said no initially and then I was like, yes. Anyway, I'll explain. So I think understanding that my culture is not everyone's culture 
And mm-hmm. my culture is not easily understood by everyone is important. And knowing that, I then have to choose how I want a certain message to be received or understood and then understand who I'm talking to or who I'm trying to communicate that message to. And it might mean that if I want that person to understand, I need to make some adjustments, but that doesn't mean that me or my culture is any like less than or not as good as. It just mm-hmm. means that I'm having a, the same conversation with a different type of person. I need to know how that person receives information positively so that they're not put off by who I am or what I do. So being Jamaican always waved that flag. Like Mm -hmm. anybody in America that knows me, they know I'm Jamaican, regardless of what I sound like or not, right? They know I'm Jamaican, but it also gives them the ability to focus on what I'm saying Mm -hmm. versus being distracted by, so you can't talk pot to a city cities are Okay, okay, stop it, please. Stop it. I'm Mm. I'm not I'm not a clown. I'm not here to perform. I really just want to give my presentation. So thank you. Tell me, though, whilst you were in America studying, when were you able to bring out your true Jamaican authentic self, where you can be who you are and felt totally relaxed, not having to put on a change for anybody? When I was self-employed. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. Only at that point in time. I mean, being self-employed, you are able to determine who you want to work with and when you want to work with them. And because you're able to determine those things, if there's someone who does not understand the general culture of what it means to be a Caribbean person, or like maybe like the casualness of how I engage with people. Actually, two days ago, I had a client. He's been my client for at least 10 years now. He's like, hey, do you talk to everybody like this? And I'm like, (laughs) yeah. And he's like, no, but like, like direct like this. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, that's cool. But like, cause like, you know, it just feels real, really comfortable and authentic. Mm-hmm. And then I had another lady three days ago, send a testimonial in for my business. And she was like, one of the things that she said was like, I just felt so comfortable right. engaging with her. And she just tells you as it is mm-hmm. now in corporate America. I didn't feel like I could do that because in a, in, in a situation where I was a subject matter expert giving advice, I was actually told one time to hold my head down and be quiet. Oh, wow. I was like, well, then why am I here? You asked my opinion. I gave you my opinion, but you're upset that my opinion is not reflecting what you would like me to say. And I don't know if that has anything to do with being like Jamaican or American or if it's just like being a human being with a, with a personality that's not mm-hmm. cookie cutter. Yeah, could even be in being a woman. I had the conversation with a woman, but that's another story altogether. Okay. <laughs> um, at that same company, actually, I had someone say, I would, something I actually recently noticed about myself. When I walk around, if I walk by someone, I look at them and either I smile or I nod my head or I say good afternoon, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's not typical American culture. That is a very Jamaican thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so, People tend to then smile back at me and wave and say hello. And and if it's in an environment where I am every day, it almost becomes ritualistic. Like if they don't see me, they'll ask like, oh my gosh, even if they don't know my name, the girl that always smiles, whatever. So I remember my boss saying, I noticed that people just like talk to you. Is it just all the Jamaicans? Like, do you guys just find each other? I was like, I'm pretty sure they don't know I'm Jamaican. One of them actually was Jamaican and the rest of them wasn't. He was actually of Jamaican descent. He was born in uh, the UK. His parents were Jamaican and he migrated to America. And he had like a very, very stereotypical Jamaican name, Camus. But it was just like, no, he doesn't sound Jamaican either. 
But the things that we talk about on the side yeah, are very different. Know. He doesn't, when he's at work, he doesn't lead with a Jamaican accent or like a yeah. walk around with a Jamaican flag on his back, but you know he's Jamaican because mm-hmm. he'll tell you. So I don't know. It's, okay. it's, a, it's a thing. All right, let's move on to the fact that you, you know, you did set up your own company. It's YKMD. Mm-hmm. What made you start that company? I actually started out of college, and which is mm. really funny. Actually, not even out, but while I was in college, because I was like, I started out with like digital photography and just like doing graphics. I was like, just wanting to like use my skills in some way because I was trying so hard to get an internship and I could not get one. Could mm-hmm. not get one to save my life. Now, and why, why I, do you think that is? Sorry, just to stop you there. Why, why could you not get an internship? I actually think that um, there were two things. One, I wasn't indoctrinated into the environment enough to know how it really worked to like figure out how to present myself at the time. So I was presenting myself in a way where I was not communicating the communicating who I was and my potential in a way that it was going to be positively received. And that's just my opinion on it. Mm-hmm. I think had I been raised in America and actually I lied there too, because I probably would be so like emotionally traumatized by all like the random racist things that had happened to me in a very short period of time that I probably wouldn't have even thought to think about it. In any case, I do think that had I been a bit more indoctrinated into the culture of how to network in America by at that age that I would have mm-hmm. had an easier time finding a, an internship within corporate America. But I, I didn't. But what I did know how to do was I knew how to make friends. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm Jamaican, right? We already established that. Jamaicans <laughs> like the party. That's a thing, right? Yep. <laughs> like all the Caribbean organizations that I'm talking about, like they're throwing like the ragers, like the parties and we are dancing. Like all the dancing that you guys see on like the random videos in the middle of the street, that's a real thing. <laughs> and like, and then we go home and we never know anybody's name again. We don't, we don't take them home with us. Like that's very mm-hmm. normal. So I would go to all these different parties and I was like, I wonder who, Oh, so I also like have like a, a degree that encompasses photography. So, I was, oh, who does the photography? And then so I became like a nightlife photographer for like one of like the Caribbean nightlife event sites. And so I would go to all the parties and I'd be like, well, who does your flyer? I could do it. And I would like stay until like the lights came on and talk to the promoters and the club owners and be like, I could do your flyers. Or even like I talked to like all the fraternity guys and the sorority girls. And it got to a point where like there's two fraternities in like South Florida, I have worked with all of their chapters. Even if it was one flyer, well, I worked on (laughs) something for every single chapter. And all of that was just, hey, who does this thing for you? I can do it for you. And I was horrible. I was just undercutting people. I was like, if if they said 100, I was like 75. And I can give it to you faster. Keep in mind, I'm a college girl who really doesn't have anything to pay for. I'm just like trying to build up a real world portfolio. Mm -hmm a portfolio where I could say people paid me to do things. And then that kind of continued for a while. And it was great because it paid for like a penthouse apartment in Miami and I was living my best life. However, I kind of started feeling inferior because my family would constantly say, you need a real job. So then I went and I got a real job. But I also used that portfolio that I had been building Mm -hmm. up to enter these different corporations. So at one point, I worked for a corporation that only worked with like casinos and very well paid. 
got laid off four weeks after being hired. Oh, everybody, wow. <laughs> like they literally fired everybody. I only had one one person who was the first person to work with them still there. And I was just like, wait, this is does this mean I'm horrible? Had nothing to do with me, right? Mm. Like that was just the nature of the business and how things were structured. They lost their biggest client. They lost whatever contracts. And it was just like, they can't afford to keep us anymore. Then after that, still feeling super inferior. Like I was like, okay, working with Robert Half and like, you know, a creative circle and being placed in this, these different like high-end jobs and these roles and then getting the full-time contract. And, you know, going from making like, $15 an hour to like $60 an hour to where like, if someone was like, oh, um, we have a job for you. It's $25 an hour. I'd be like, no, honey, I don't, that's, that's not for me. And again, I'm in my twenties. I'm in my early twenties. I graduated college when I was 20, which I didn't realize was like not a normal thing. But in any case, I finished the, the whole like associate bachelor's thing in like a three-year situation because I went to summer school. There were some mm. terms where I was doing 26 credits a semester, which is basically full-time times two, just so I could like get out of there. Anyway, <laughs> so a lot of that was, again, like family pressure of like what a respectable young lady should like going out at four o'clock in the morning to go pick up your check from a nightclub is not a respectable job. Working from your bed with your little laptop is not a real job. And I'm totally blindsided by the fact that like, I am actually able to function independently and sustain mm -hmm. myself. I am just focused on like how my family is perceiving me and the, and the prestige associated with like having a corporate job. So then got laid off again. I think I probably have been laid off at least five times. Like not even talking about contracts. I mean, like having mm. full-time jobs. And even next week, I'm going to go hang out with one of the guys that like laid me off. Like, so it's not like the people didn't like me, right? Like mm. it was just like, it's the thing to do. Like, oh, budget's not going so well. You cut the marketing department. And that doesn't necessarily mean I was necessarily happy at any of those places. I knew how to function enough. Mm -hmm. um, there were two places where I was like severely depressed because I had recognize that like I can actually function as me and it will be okay. And I'll still do a good job. So I don't have to like pretend and like walk on eggshells. Anyway, then I got laid off for the last time. I was like, I'm over here trying to find a real job. I still have clients, mind you, because I, I haven't done it with my client list. Mm -hmm. I am still like working a full-time job and like running this business. But instead of me doing all the work, I'm hiring designers to actually do the fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting, I'm essentially acting as like the project manager and my clients don't know any different. Mm -hmm. So it's fine. I'm over here stressing about having a real job just so like, I can look good in front of my family when I'm literally making the same amount of money that I'm making in corporate America without corporate America. I was like, so screw this. I'm not doing this anymore. And I just like went full force in my job in a place where I could be comfortable. There was nothing more frustrating to me than my boss telling me that I needed to come into the office to do my job was annoying to me because I was the mm. only person in the office. Everybody else was working all over the country. And I was required to come into the office. And I think a lot of that was actually because I was the only black girl that worked at that company. And everybody knew I made a lot more money than the rest of them because my, my salary was posted on the company website, but a lot of them didn't know that I made $35,000 more than what was posted. So they would have been really mad. <laughs> and it was really, it had nothing to do with my skills. It had nothing to do with if I, cause I never missed a deadline, right? Mm. Like I never like I was present, like I was doing my job. I just didn't feel like I needed to come into the office yeah. every day, but I was logged in. I was tapped in. I was working. And it was just like the perception that I wasn't there in the office or like coming to work 
at 9.30 versus coming to work at 8, even though I leave the office at 7 and 8 p.m. after everybody. Mm. Like, screw y'all. Or like having environments where, and I think I tell this story probably a little too much, but it was really, it was really a significant one where I had a girl come to me and she goes, who do you know here? And I'm like, what do you mean by that? She's like, who do you know here that you have this job? Like you have a nicer job than me. You have a nicer car than me. You have a nicer wardrobe than me. Like, do you have a sugar daddy? And I'm like, (laughs) you know what? If you can find me a sugar daddy so I don't have to come to work anymore, I would really appreciate it. And then I went back. Because at this point, it's 7.30 p.m. And I'm if I had a sugar daddy, honey, I would be at the house. I would be at home. I wouldn't be at work at 7 p.m. trying to make sure that I get everything wrapped up so I don't have to like worry about missing my Monday deadline. Makes no sense. Yeah. But again, I was that company. I was also the, I, for most of it. I'm typically the only black person in corporate America, mm. like within my field, which is also a reason yeah. why I work so hard to advocate for people that look like me joining this space and knowing that it is a Mm. viable way to make a living, regardless of what the perception is within our black culture, it is a viable way to make a living, but Mm. we are not introduced to it because the idea of the arts is frivolous. The arts are for people of privilege. The arts are not for people who need to make a living. And that's, it's not true. So tell me, um, is the, is the industry still, I don't know much about the industry. Is it still like that now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so. Is it changing? You can see that there are people who are making significant efforts to change mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. One, to introduce the industry, the graphic arts industry. I mean, actually, it's not even just the graphic arts industry, but I'll circle back to that. But to introduce the graphic arts industry to Black America to let mm-hmm. them know that there are ways to be successful that don't include picking up a ball or running or being mm-hmm. a lawyer or a doctor. And there's nothing wrong with being any of those things, but like you can go and get a certification in um, being an electrician and do really well. Yeah, There are non-traditional ways that aren't glorified on TV that are a way to like do and make a really great life for yourself. And the thing I wanted to circle back to is that It is a regular thing as a Black person to walk into a professional environment and to be one of one. And for Mm. me, that's super frustrating. And I never want to actually leave a space and leave it as one of one. So I always try to, and this is probably probably coming from a place of like trauma and like wanting to overcompensate, but I always try to be like the best so that when the next Black person comes, they don't think, you know, the black people, the black folks, they're lazy. They don't really work. I, I never want to like leave the space in that way because I yeah. want the ne- the person that comes after me to have a fair shot. Like, are they competent? What does their portfolio look like? Do they have the skill sets that we need versus last time we hired a black Jamaican girl, it got weird in here, mm. you know, <laughs> even though sometimes that also inadvertently happens because people have biases. Yes, Whatever. Of course. Of course. So tell me now, you're out of the corporate life. You are running your own shop, as it were. How is that going? You've still got your original clients that you've had for years. How have you grown the business? What's what's it like today? So the, there, are, there are two things there. I don't necessarily have the, my original clients. Some of them okay. I do. But the other day, I actually realized I priced my clients out. And I did that as I was like chasing 
what success looked like and what mm-hmm. success, the perception of success was. And actually decided to start another business, but I'll talk about that later. That services them. In any case, now I am in a space where I am doing corporate event design, corporate event um, experiential assets and working with people in the trade show and corporate Mm. or business event arena that need an expert within that field, someone who has experience, someone who knows what works in that corporate space, but also someone who's willing to push the boundaries and has the capacity to see something new existing in an otherwise, you know, starch and boring place. And I actually really dived into it in 2020 because that was when everybody was running away from events. Oh, if the event industry is dying, uh, yeah. Yeah. this isn't gonna no one's no one's ever gonna do in-person events ever again because of COVID. Da, da, da. And we can see that's not the case. But I don't function from a place of fear. At least I don't, I try really hard not to. And mm. so when everybody else was running, I decided to run too. And I was like, well, if you guys are leaving, there's space for me. So 2020, I probably made more money than any normal human being should from their living room with their laptop. So going back to the beginning, I had like co-working space and like office space I would rent because I wanted to look and feel mm. professional and, and official. Now, even in Jamaica, like I'm I'm working from like a very small, maybe five by eight corner and making more money than I did when I was renting out an 800 square foot office. Because hmm. why? Yeah. Interesting. Now, let's get on to something else, because obviously with your qualifications and the work that you've done in, in graphic design, you are also served on the executive board of the Graphics Artists Guild, um, mm-hmm. initially as national treasurer, but uh, then you were elected as their first black president. How did that That's come about? Thing. How did you get connected, first of all, with the the Artists Guild? that's a great story. So I interned for this guy (laughs) named Barry Zaid. Barry Zaid is an awesome illustrator. He lived in Miami at the time. Now he's like living his best life in Mexico. We actually connected the other day. And I sent out these emails with a video that I made on YouTube. And I I actually hope no one goes to go look for it because the production (laughs) quality isn't that great. But like, I still like wholeheartedly believe in the message about asking experienced designers with a portfolio and with solid testimonials to work for exposure. You can go kick rocks. And so I had sent the video out to like probably everybody. I was just like, don't ask me to do this. I'm not doing it. Find a cliff and dive. And um, he was like, if you really feel this way, you should check out the Graphic Artists Guild. And I was like, okay. So then I joined. Then like an email went out and they're looking for a Southern regional rep. And I was like, look at the job. Because I was like, I can do this. This is easy. This is, I can do this in my sleep. And I was so nervous, so nervous. <laughs> and I wrote this very proper, elaborate letter presenting myself as the ideal candidate. And I don't think it was a contested election, but I won. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, since then, I've kind of like moved through the ranks of leadership. And after being Southern Regional Rep for a while, I realized there weren't a lot of people that looked like me in the organization. And I was like, that's a problem for me. Mm. When we're doing the membership spotlights, I was like, why am I constantly the only black person? This can't be a thing. There has to be other black members. They are. 
and I found them. But it's just a matter of like how you put together messaging and how people feel the environment is curated for them. I've had people, even as recently as this month, actually, say to me, I thought before you were president, which you know, I kind of feel a way about that because I've been making this effort long before I was president. But they were like, before you were president, we thought the guild was just a bunch of old white people. And I was like, oh. And then they would say, but then I saw you. I'm definitely joining. And one of the girls I talked to the other day, she was like, you presented at a conference and you talked about the Graphic Artists Guild. And she was like, I saw you and I saw me. And I was like, I can be you. And then she joined the Graphic Artists mm-hmm. Guild. And then she talked about like, all these ways that the guild's resources have helped her to better her career and to like increase her just general professionalism and to like earn more money because the guild really has a lot of great resources. But if we as an organization are not placing ourselves in an environment where people who are disenfranchised can find those resources, then we're not an organization for everybody. Mm. And we need to be. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be here to uplift the graphic artist profession as a whole. We do the organize, we do the professional disservice if we're only educating the people who can, who are already exposed to formal education or already exposed to what it means to be a top tier designer and the accolades that are associated with that. What about the designer who has a bootleg version of Photoshop and is designing flyers for his uncle and them? If he doesn't really understand the value that he's delivering and how he could position himself, like we're going to constantly be struggling to pull the people yep. who think that design is a commodity along. We're not properly educating the people that are servicing them to understand the value that they're delivering and what kinds of financial compensation that value begets. Hmm. So that was like a little bit of a soapbox again, but. So you. I'm assuming that this is one of the roles that you play in terms of championing underrepresented voices, given you know, people that that look like you are more inclined to want to get into that field, right? That's why I'm yes. hearing you say. Which is true just about anywhere, right? Yeah. When so, you see someone that looks like you, it it makes you feel like it's attainable. Yeah, absolutely. So just tell me if there is young people these days who are thinking about doing this. You know, may not see their cells or, you know, they may not see people that look like them. How, what advice would you give? Because you you broke that ground, right, in, the, in this particular industry. And, of course, you are a very confident, very outgoing person, and not everybody is like that. So what advice would you give people who are aspiring to get to, not necessarily in the graphics design industry, but anywhere, but don't have that level of confidence what type of advice would you would you give uh, okay so one i fully acknowledge that i was raised in an environment where i saw people that look like me be successful at anything hmm. i fully acknowledge that i was raised in a household where even though they weren't excited about me being an artist i was constantly told that i could be anything that i want to be i fully acknowledge that my grandfather would always look at me and say You are not a fool. And anything that you decide to do, you are going to be successful at it. I acknowledge that that level of nurturing really contributed to Mm. the kind of person I choose to be when I step out into the world. Because I'm actually not a very outgoing person. I'd rather be at home (laughs) locked in a room by myself. But no one ever believes me when I tell them. However, you cannot allow the fear of failure 
to stop you from trying anything. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, even if you don't see someone that looks like you, imagine it's possible and find someone who's doing what you're doing. Be transparent about what it is that you're looking to do and see if you can find a mentor. If you can't find an individual, find a group of people that's doing what you're doing. Mm. Socialize with them, talk to them, ask them questions, ask them how they do things, get real understanding. That Those conversations will give you guidance towards where you need to be. Do not let fear paralyze you. Mm. Fear is literally like easily the killer of dreams long before racism or prejudice ever is. It's your choice and how you decide to step into things. Because I mean, there are lots of roadblocks, right? And there are lots of people that are going to knock you away, not give you chances. God knows getting a business loan is hard as heck in America, especially as a black person. The things that they ask you for is like, wait, what? I didn't even know that was a thing. Wait, so I need to, I need to have that five years ago to qualify for the loan now? Like, right? But don't be afraid to try. Don't be afraid to start. And you might fail, grand scheme of things. Plan A might fail. And then you pivot and then you go to B. And then B, you might have learned something in A that you don't do again in B so that you make a little adjustment. B Mm -hmm. doesn't work. You go to C, you make another little adjustment. And then all of a sudden, by the time you get to like M, you're like, I'm a pro now. I'm balling out of control. I can (laughs) do this. I can do this in my sleep. Well, they say that every that's what I got. Yeah, they say that every failure you have takes you that one step closer to success. Right. So it's about if you fail. Yeah, it's how you react to it. You know, you get up and you go again. It's not it's not a fallacy. It's not like some weird little folklore. It's it's not just like some it's a real thing. There are nights where I cried. There are days where my bank account was like negative ten thousand dollars because I made the wrong decision because I I functioned from a place of like ignorance and didn't ask the right questions. It happens, and then you learn, and then you get better, and you move forward. Mm. But don't let those roadblocks be the reason why you do not get to the place that you say you wanted to go. That's fantastic advice. Now, look, we're coming already uh, up to the end of the show, but tell me what is next for you, Yannick? You know, you've achieved so much you've built businesses you're you know influencing industries you know graphics industry by being um president you're also on the vice president of the international council of design so you're really kind of influencing that space um incredibly well but what is next for you what do you aspire to now so once so i started a, a fund or a nonprofit in honor of my my brother who passed away and that is going to be supporting the education of people within the arts, music, performing arts arena. So what we're going to be doing with that is actually paying their tuition so that they can go to school, so they can have oh, scholarships wow. just like I did to decide their future. Really excited. We're actually fundraising right now, and I think it's going really, really well. Um, it's called the AKSfund.org. So if you want to donate, you can go there. Shameless plug, AKSfund.org. So there's that. And that's kind of like a part of what I've said I wanted to do, just like uplifting the community. And I feel like even though my brother was like taken from me in like a really vile and unnecessary way, he's now given me the opportunity to, or the encouragement, even Mm -hmm. in his passing, to help and uplift more people in the community. 
Additionally, I also want to continue to design my life in a way where I have a certain kind of freedom. I fully acknowledge right like, oh, I'm in Florida right now. Normally I'm in mm-hmm. Jamaica. I can work from anywhere in the world and I have no limitations and no one can tell me that I can't go there. So continuing to do that, continuing to develop relationships and build clients and build confidence in those relationships where they continue to come back and sustain the business regardless of where I'm located, because they feel confident that the work will get done and done well, regardless of if I'm on a beach or, you know, snowboarding, whatever it is. Then I also really, 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 really want to improve my Spanish Mm-hmm. My Spanish right now, like I can understand, but my ability to respond is like, ugh. so I want to spend a year or two in a Spanish speaking country. But right now, because I am living primarily in Jamaica with my grandmother, it's not the most attainable thing, but that's on my list of things to do. And then after that is French, um, Mandarin, uh-huh. and then Arabic in that order. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much. Oh, I forgot a thing. How, how did I forget a thing? <laughs> so I started... I started a whole other business that I haven't actually launched yet, but it's called mypartyflyers.com because that's where I started. And Mm -hmm. I priced those people out and I can totally serve that industry still, but from a very different way and still add value there. Just fully acknowledging that like the tools and resources that we provide for corporate America at the price point that we provide it to them isn't necessarily what those other people need. Mm -hmm. And they definitely don't have the funds for it. So creating a different kind of offering to also supply that audience. So yeah, that's fantastic. That's what's next. <laughs> well, Unique, thank you very much for sharing your story, your experiences and the fantastic things you've achieved. And I'm sure you will go on to achieve going forward. So I just want to thank you very much and wish you every success for the future. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. You take care. Bye for now. for joining us on this episode of Diversity Matters. We hope that through our discussions, we have brought a deeper understanding of what diversity, equity, and inclusion truly means for each one of us. Remember, the journey towards true diversity, equity, and inclusion is ongoing. Let's continue to champion these values in our lives and strive for positive change together. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe to Diversity Matters on your favorite podcast app. 